I am the most amateur of magicians. I have about 10 tricks, all of them procured on the basis that I could learn how to do the trick in 10 minutes or less. I just don't have the patience to be endlessly practicing fancy shuffles and sleights of hand. I need pretty much instant magic and instant gratification. But I've come to realize that there are two types of trick. There's one that needs a gimmick to work. The gimmick is the thing, the mechanism that allows a trick to really work. I mean, for instance, one of the tricks I have is a kid's color by numbers book. And when I open it for the first time, it has those kind of uncolored in pictures, black line pictures. When I open it a second time, the pictures are magically colored. When I open it a third time, the pages are now completely blank. And then when I open it a final time, we're back to the original black line pictures. It's fantastic. I've got a whole spiel with it. Kids' eyes pop out of their heads when I do it. So do adults, actually. The whole book is a gimmick. If you know how to use it, anybody can do this trick. There's a way of working with it that gets those results, and it's nothing to do with any skill on my part. The second type of trick is one that you can do with whatever's in front of you. And I've really got just one trick I can do with a regular pack of playing cards. There's nothing fancy. There's nothing hidden. There's nothing I need to have in my pocket. There's nothing rigged. I just know how to work the pack and work the spiel, misdirect people, and so that it can seem that I can read minds and control the cards. Now, almost all the tricks I know how to do need that gimmick. And it means that I can only do them when I plan to do them when I have whatever it is in my pocket or in my bag or whatever, ready to go. But I'm coming to realize that the trick that seems most extraordinary is the trick where you can work with what's happening right there in front of you. It means that you can sense the opportunity, read the audience, seize the moment, and change what they think is possible. That's magic. Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. My guest today is Vin Zhang. Now, Vin is a teacher, a keynote speaker, and a magician. Now, his life began with a prophecy. I was an Asian child being pushed to fulfill the Asian prophecy of becoming an accountant. And then I had to break out of that mold to have the courage to be able to pursue what I wanted to pursue. And what Vin wanted to pursue was the art of prestidigitation. That's a hundred dollar word, which I think I pronounced correctly, for sleight of hand. Now, Vin was a magician for about five years and a good one too. He made a living, he, he got known. But he came to realize that this wasn't actually his path. And he moved to speaking and teaching which is actually how I came to know him because I'm in that world as well. But when you look at Vin's mission statement, it's clear where his roots are. It's clear that this grows from the same soil. In front of me in my office here, I've, I've just got a little statement that says, helping making the invisible visible. With all his time on stage, you might be surprised to learn that Vin's mission statement comes from personal experience. Or perhaps, as I alluded to in my introduction, to his real magic trick. Well, I was invisible. Growing up, people would always forget my name. Uh, 
classic during sport team days, people wouldn't pick me as being a part of their team. Uh, the girls in school wouldn't notice me, uh, wouldn't pay attention to me. When you're in that situation, in that moment, it's hard to know who to blame. You know, I mean, I used to blame the world, Michael. I used to go, oh, damn this teacher, damn these friends, damn the world for not noticing me and, and seeing me. And then as long as I kept blaming other people, I kept being invisible. But there was one moment that truly pushed Finn to the realization that he had to take responsibility for becoming visible when he failed in the most unexpected way. I remember this moment vividly because it was myself and four other entrepreneurs. And at the time, my business has already been making money. We were post-revenue. We were already right. making money. Yeah. And the other four entrepreneurs, they were pre-revenue. And it was interesting because that night I went in there, I pitched my online course, my online product that I had, an app for, for teaching magic tricks. And I've, I've got the video of me pitching it and I pitched it. I was racing through the content and I was nervous. I didn't look at anybody. I had no eye contact, nothing. And I thought I'd done a great job. And I thought that because we were post-revenue that we would get picked. I thought, well, we've got really strong here. Yeah. And, and I walked away that night, long story short being the only entrepreneur that didn't get any investment. And that, that really hurt mm. because the other four were just at the conceptual stage. And I, I couldn't understand, just from a logical point of view, Logos here, how yeah. these venture capitalists picked all four that had no proven record. And I just remember the drive home with my wife that night. At the time, she was my girlfriend still. And I was just so angry, Michael. I was so angry. And, and that was when my wife, you know, brilliantly just said, maybe it's not everybody else. <laughs> maybe it's you. <laughs> you know, and, and it was the worst time for her to say that because yeah, then I got angry you had at her. to break up with her that night. Not only did you yeah, not get the deal, I'm now breaking up with you because I, did I ask for <laughs> the hard truth? I don't think so. <laughs> no, but it, it's interesting because that's why I love my wife as well is because yeah. she always tells me the truth. Yeah. And... She doesn't sugarcoat anything. I mean, gosh, the, the, from the moment I first met her, she told me the truth. I've got to tell you now. I remember when I first met her, Michael, I walked up to her with a packet of cards and I said, would you be impressed if I transformed this king of hearts into the queen of hearts like yourself? <laughs> Freaking terrible. I needed advice from your mom. And then, and then she looks at me and she says, I'd be more impressed if you transformed yourself into a real man and had a conversation with me. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why I love her. She, she always gives me shit straight, right? That's fantastic. And, and, and that was one of those nights as well. She just gave it to me straight. And, yeah. and that's when I realized, whoa, okay, something's wrong here. Because for the last bloody 20 plus years of my life, I've been walking around blaming everybody else. And why don't you see me? Why don't you see why I'm great? Why don't you see it? And that was the night. That was the last experience, the straw that breaks the donkey's back, if you would. Yeah. I just went, ah, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's me. I need the responsibility... To, to shine bright like a diamond, as Rihanna would say, yeah. that responsibility is with me and nobody else. And that's when I went down the journey of, okay, I need to learn how to use my voice, learn how to use body language, learn how to storytell, learn the craft of great communication. I, I want to ask you about what you learned, but before that, what did you have to unlearn to <laughs> step into this moment? You are the best at asking questions. <laughs> so fun talking to you. I, things I had to unlearn. Number one, I've already stated, was the blaming of others and thinking that it was other people's responsibility to recognize the brilliance in me. Yeah. 
also, also had to unlearn all of the bad habits. I, I had this idea in my head that this is how I should naturally sound. This is my natural voice. And then I had to learn that, no, 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 it's not your natural voice, it's your habitual voice. It's just a series of habits that has, have led you to becoming the person that you are and the person who communicates in the way that you communicate. Uh, you know, it's not who I am, it's just, it's just a series of habits. So I had to unlearn all of those habits that I, that I anchored as being me. Mm. I was more quiet, I was more, more reserved, I was more softly spoken and everything. And I thought that was me. And I had to unlearn that to go, well, no, that's just a series of habits. Right. And that was the hardest thing to do because I'd, I'd anchored those habits and ingrained them into who I am for 20 years. And to unlearn those habits, oh, it was, I don't know, it was like, it was like the first time my wife laid me down on the bed and, and started plucking some of my eyebrows. It was the most pain I've ever felt in my <laughs> life. It, was like, it felt like those eyebrows were connected to my brain. Right. You know, and, and it, it felt like that for the longest time. I wasn't sure where that story was going to go. My wife yeah. laid me down on the bed and uh, I was like, that's, okay. That's the only thing she plucks, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. You're talking this moment of unlearning and transformation. Yeah. When you introduced yourself, you talked about being brought up, uh, being brought up in the expectation of living the Asian immigrant dream to kind of follow that path and, and then breaking out of that. Mm. How did you, how do you deal with the broken hearts of people whose expectations you've not met? I still think I'm dealing with it today. I think I still over overcompensate with the way that I care for my parents today. Right. Because I feel that somewhere deep in their hearts, they still feel disappointed. <laughs> you know, it's funny. My mum has this wall of pictures and it has my brother, my cousins and everyone in the family who has a degree. And bless her heart, there's still a space there for me. <laughs> <laughs> and I know it's there and she knows it's there. and. It's interesting because I know why they feel that way, because they've been through war. Yeah, they've lost everything and had to come to Australia and was lucky enough that Australia took him in, and started again with nothing, not knowing the language, like just zero. And I think when you have that much fear in your life, yeah, you cling to security, of course. And security for my parents was education. And it's so hard for them to unlearn that in the world we live in today, the academic path isn't the only way to success. Yeah. And when you've had that kind of conditioning, well, war and scarcity and fear at its most extreme level, it's so hard to unlearn. And, and I've just learned in my life to have empathy for that. Whereas when I was young, I used to get angry at them and I used to see that gap on the wall and get angry. But now I, I, I have so much more empathy for that. You know, and I, I recently just stuck my picture up there with me holding a bunch of playing cards, you know, just being silly. <laughs> and it's funny because I used to do that. My mum would take it down, but she's left it up now. That's great. You know, and, and it, I think it's empathy from her end and it's empathy from my end. It's kind of, it's just beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Empathy, right? Yeah. You know, a friend of mine is the, I think she's the vice chancellor at the University of South Australia. So maybe oh. I could talk to Marnie and see if I can get an honorary uh, degree for you because I know you're based yes. in Adelaide as well. Would and they then, Photoshop and, you know, something for me with that yeah. hat and the little paper? I can, I can, <laughs> I, I, I can pull strings. I, have, I know people. 
All right, Michael, I'm going to hold you to that now. <laughs> I, I want to ask. I want to ask one other question around the the heritage from your parents. You know, there's there's a way that there's let's call it generational trauma can get passed on. And if you think about the trauma that your parents went through as being refugees and fleeing Vietnam and coming to Australia and trying to build a new life in Australia, and you talk about scarcity and um, you know a, a, a an orientation towards safety and security. I'm wondering if you feel you inherited any of that and what it took to manage that if you did. I feel like it didn't with me. Mm. I feel like I'm kind of opposite to that. Right. Because my parents felt so much fear and and scarcity and all of that, I, I, I feel like in my life I've done a lot of really risky things. You know, to, to, to forego the traditional path of success and, and get a degree and become an accountant in my path and then work for a yeah. firm and then hopefully one day becoming a partner and then buying investment properties, et cetera. That was the written script, the default script that I should have followed. And I think leaving that wasn't me clinging to security. Yeah. I think security was shoved down my throat all my life that I was nauseated by it. Right, right. So I think it had the complete opposite effect. Where I just, I wanted freedom. I wanted, I wanted to do things that would, would get my heart racing, whereas I wasn't allowed to do any of that. Right. And that's why it pushed me in the opposite direction, I feel. Ben, let me ask you about the book you've chosen to read from. What have you picked? I've picked The Almanac of Naval Ravikant. Such a good, I mean, such an influential thinker and writer of our day. Yeah. And I love that you picked this because we haven't had this author before. What, awesome. what drew you to it? I have never read a book that I afterwards immediately went on and purchased 100 copies <laughs> and then just gave it to every single person in my network. Yeah. Right? And I did that because this book has so much wisdom packed in such a small book and written so eloquently and precisely. It's just nuggets of wisdom being thrown at you nonstop. And, and it's almost exhausting reading it because it's just nugget after nugget after nugget after right. nugget. And, and that's, that's one of the, th I mean, I attribute a lot of the success I've, I've been able to achieve in my life at the moment, a lot to this book, because I read this book just before the pandemic. Mm. And it, it pushed me to create a stronger online profile, to create an online course and, and to perfect the online course more and more. And a lot of the abundance and success I feel I have now, I attribute a lot of it to, to some of the key concepts in this book. Knowing that it's this dense black hole of awesomeness, how did you choose the two pages you're going to read for us? It was one of the most challenging things <laughs> I've ever done, Michael. So thank you for that. It was so stressful. <laughs> I, I picked two pages and then I, I would wake up in the middle of the night going, no, I picked the wrong two pages. And then I went back to the book and I picked another two. I reckon I've changed my mind easily six, seven times. It's fun. And I still feel like I picked the wrong two pages. So what have you done to me? <laughs> Come on, you're a magician. You know about forced choice. You should just make it feel like it's the right choice and your choice, even if it's not. You know how to play Yeah, that but I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm a shitty magician at that. So I'm, I don't know. I think I picked the wrong one. But anyway, this, this is the best I could have done because 
if, if, if this was tomorrow, the interview, I would have changed my mind again. Well, that's perfect. <laughs> These are the best two pages for right now, right today. For right um, now in this moment, yeah. Yeah. So, Vin, over to you. Let's hear these two pages. Okay. So, the title starts with, Find Work That Feels Like Play. Humans evolved as hunters and gatherers where we all worked for ourselves. It is only at the beginning of agriculture we became more hierarchical. The industrial revolution and factories made us extremely hierarchical because one individual couldn't necessarily own or build a factory. But now, thanks to the internet, we're going back to an age where more and more people can work for themselves. I would rather be a failed entrepreneur than someone who never tried. Because even a failed entrepreneur has the skill set to make their own. There are almost 7 billion people on this planet. Someday, I hope, there will almost be 7 billion companies. I learned how to make money because it was a necessity. After it stopped being a necessity, I stopped caring about it. At least for me, work was a means to an end. Making money was a means to an end. I'm much more interested in solving problems than I am in making money. Any end goal will just lead to another end goal and lead to another goal. We just play games in life. When you grow up, you're playing the school game or you're playing the social game. Then you're playing the money game and then you're playing the status game. The games just have longer and longer and longer lived horizons. At some point, at least I believe, these are all just games. These are games where the outcomes really stop mattering once you see through the game. Then you just get tired of the games. I would say I'm at the stage now where I'm just tired of games. I don't think there is any end goal or purpose. I'm just living life as I want to. I'm literally just doing it moment to moment. I want to be off the hedonic treadmill. What you really want is freedom. You want freedom from your money problems, right? And I think that's okay. Once you can solve your money problems, either by lowering your lifestyle or by making enough money, you want to retire. Not retirement at the 65-year-old sitting in a nursing home collecting a paycheck retirement. It's a different definition. My definition of retirement is when you stop sacrificing today for an imaginary tomorrow. When today is complete in and of itself, you're retired. How do you get there? Well, one way is to have so much money saved in your passive income that without you lifting a finger, it covers your burn rate. The second is you drive your burn rate down to zero, become a monk. And third is you're doing something you love. You enjoy it so much, it's not about the money. So there are multiple ways to reach retirement. And the way for you to get out of competition trap or get out of the competition trap is to be authentic, to find the thing you know how to do better than anybody else. You know how to do it better because you love it. And no one can compete with you because you love it. And if you love it, be authentic and then figure out how to map out or map that out to what society actually wants. Apply some leverage, put your name on it. You take the risks, but you gain the rewards. You have ownership and equity in what you're doing and then crank it up.
Brilliant, Vin. Thank you. <laughs> what, what did that passage unlock for you? Oh, gosh, there was one line where I saw you nod as well. Uh, and, and the line was, retirement is when you stop sacrificing today for an imaginary tomorrow. I, I have sacrificed so many days of my life, my present days, in my 20s, late 20s, early 30s, now mid 30s, for an imaginary tomorrow, Michael. And it freaks me out a little bit when I think about it. Yeah. It's a trap that I keep falling back into. I'm not saying, oh, look at me, I've no longer fall for this trap. No, I fall for that still, Michael, all the time. You know, it's, it's the classic trap of I'll be happy when. Yes. It's how Naval defines it. Desire is the contract we make with ourselves that we won't be happy until we achieve something else, right? <laughs> and it's, it's just that I, I have, that's another thing I have up on my wall to continually remind myself, stop sacrificing today for an imaginary tomorrow. Mm. That's definitely, I know many things in this passage I just read, but that's a big one for me. Let me pick up, if I may, on one thing you, that Naval talks about with the, when he says, be authentic. Mm. And I want to make the connection between that and what you had said earlier around understanding what your habits were and needing to put some old habits behind and embrace some new habits. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering what you see, I'm wondering what you think authentic means, knowing that so much of who we are is a, is a, is a learned act, is a performance, is, is showmanship. Yeah. The way I think about authenticity is like this, and I use a metaphor. I mean, think of a, think of a piano. A piano has 88 keys, right? And I find that a lot of the times when I teach communication skills in particular with behaviors and unlearning things, et cetera, when I get my students to speak on stage, they'll speak there and they'll feel comfortable and they'll feel like they're being authentic. And then I'll get them to try something different with their voice. And I'll get them to, you know, use some higher pitches and some softer tones and maybe some deeper tones. And, and the moment I do that, they go, oh, nope, nope, can't do that, Vin. That's right. fake. It's phony. It's inauthentic. And I immediately in that moment push them to make a reframe because it's the same reframe I had to make. And I had to go, no, 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 no. If you can make the sound, how can it be fake? I mean, you made the sound. How can it be fake or phony? It's your instrument. It's not fake or phony. It's just that in life, we've become extremely comfortable with these keys here. Right. And you're just extremely familiar now with these keys. Mm -hmm. And the keys that I just got you to play with, with your voice, it's not fake. It's not phony. They're just unfamiliar. Right. That's all. And the goal in communication, I believe, is that we need to become familiar with all the keys on our instruments so that when the time arises and we need to express ourselves a certain way, we have access to all 88 keys. And I believe in authenticity is when we have access to our entire instrument, emotionally, vocally, body language wise, capacity, yeah. the ability to storytell, et cetera. When we have full access to metaphorically 88 keys, then we're able to express ourselves authentically and completely. Whereas if I only have access to two keys, yeah. then I don't believe that's authentic. That's just me using the keys I'm familiar with. Authenticity is having access to all of the instrument. I guess if you're, that I understand, like, I'm, like you, I, I speak on stage. 
and I get nice feedback about it. People like it's just a natural up there, and I'm like, it's all learned behavior. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. I've I've been practicing a whole bunch of stuff for a whole bunch of time to make it look quite natural, but it's it's you know, that pause wasn't just an accident. That pause was <laughs> a deliberate three beat pause because I know the impact of that three beat pause. Yeah, but connecting it to to um, the passage from Naval, where it's like, be authentic. Yeah. If being authentic is having access to all the keys, that feels quite overwhelming. It means that anything I can, if I can do it, it's authentic. Mm. How do you, I wonder what the question is. I think maybe the question is how do you then have the courage to choose the song you're playing with the 88 keys? Well, I think, I think once you start exploring all the keys and once you start exploring your instrument, that's when you'll start to build awareness as to which songs you like to play. I know we're playing with the metaphor pretty hard here, but then, <laughs> then you'll start to discover what genre of music you like. Then you'll start to discover what types of songs you like to sing. And then it's about having the courage to follow your heart and follow the desire and follow the passion in that sense, that you'll find something that you start lean, leaning towards. Mm. Otherwise, if you only play with the keys you have access to now, there could be a world of music that you're not being exposed to. Yeah. So to me, it's a process of exploration and in the exploration, you'll find there are things that you naturally gravitate towards. And then don't be afraid of that. I think you're right too in that. Don't be, don't be afraid of leaning into some of it. You know, and going, oh, I like playing this style of music. Oh, I love R&B. Oh, I love hip. I, I love this kind of way of communicating, way of being. And then give yourself permission to, to be that. And then and something I often say, Michael, is, you know, don't be so attached to who you are in the present that you don't give the future version of yourself a chance. Right. Yeah. What's your relationship with ambition? Because ambition is about tomorrow. It's not about today. I have a bad relationship with ambition. <laughs> yeah. I... I think at times I, I think at times because I'm afraid to be more present, because I don't know how to be more present, I lean into ambition as an escape, right? It's, 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 I'm afraid to sit still. And it's funny because Naval says, well, the ways in which you can reach retirement, one of the ways is you become a monk. You know, I, I haven't talked about this publicly much at all, Michael, my dad is a monk and he gave up all of his possessions and gave his money to charity, et cetera, many years ago. And he became a monk. And my dad always encourages me to be still. And I'm still working through some of that because I avoid being still and I escape through ambition. So that's my relationship with ambition. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it's a it's a paradox, and I feel I feel the same tension, Vin. So I I, I am I'm nodding with oh. empathy here, which is okay. That's good to know. <laughs> you know, there's this wisdom around being present and taking joy in the, the 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 work for the sake of the work in the moment. Yeah, don't trade your today for your tomorrow. Um, and then there's what is your future self, and how do you unlock your future you, and what's the, if you're trying to be present in the moment, 
how do you stay connected to your future you isn't ambition one of the ways you open up what's possible for you i mean you your story is that it is a story yeah. of an ambition and reaching and unlocking more authentic versions of vin mm. it's a it's a tricky road to navigate i don't have any answers there <laughs> listeners I've please write nothing else the to, to the meaning of life just put that in the subject line and then we'll, we'll Vin and i will take it from there yeah yeah well no you'll take it from there and i'll just shut up and listen <laughs> Vin, when i when i watch your work you have a huge following on instagram you have wonderful videos um what i notice is your precision your precision in your your words, your precision in your body language, your precision precision in your your positioning on a camera or on a stage. How did you come to master this art, this art of precision? Through relentless trial and error. Huh. I I often you gosh, I'm so sorry. I speak in metaphors, but I often tell a lot of my students when I teach communication that the way I've found my way to achieve the things I've been able to achieve and you know, nothing that great by, by, by comparative means to others. But I, if algebra, right? If the simple algebra, algebra equation is X plus one equals two, then you'd have to solve for X. And for most people, it's obvious. They go, oh yeah, well then X equals one. So X, you know, one plus one equals two. But the way I used to do algebra when I was young is I'll just plug in every single number I can until it works out. Right. So I try nine plus one equals two, eight plus one equals two. And then I'll just try all of it until something works. And then when it works, I'm like, oh yeah, that's the one that works. And that's the way I used to do algebra when I was young. That's the way I still do life. Yeah. It's just, I realized that failure is just a result. It just means that your methodology was incorrect. It doesn't mean it's something that's permanent. It just means change what you had X as. Instead of X equal, equaling nine, just change it and make it equal five and then make it equal one. So to me, it's just a trial and error process. I don't think there's any genius in me at all. It's just that I keep trying and I've been creating content, Michael, for, for nine plus years. And my following on Instagram or any other platform has only happened in the last 12 months. Yeah. Yeah. What has it taken to become resilient to this ongoing failure that is the deep current of the success? I just always believe that whatever I do, it's just version 1.0. <laughs> nice. And it's version 20.0 that's going to be successful. And, and that thinking in that way, Michael, it helps me it helps me not become so negatively affected by my perfectionist, right? But by the perfectionist in me. Yeah. It helps me just get past that straight away and go, no, 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 it's fine. This is just version 1.0. I mean, it's like my online course right now. That's version 4.0. I've recreated that online course four times over the last five years, mm. complete overhauls of it. And I think, again, there's, there's no genius there. There's no brilliant lesson there besides just, hey, that's only, that's iteration one. Yeah. Uh, do iteration two next year. Yeah. Or you created a video this week and it didn't do that well. That's okay. That's iteration 1.0. Then do version 2.0 next week. Yeah, it's very interesting. Because so, nothing's permanent. It's not permanent. I, I, 
people ask me about the success of the coaching habit and you know it's partly it's a good book and partly it's luck and all sorts of things but one of the factors is in an attempt to get it published by a mainstream publisher i just rewrote the book like 15 <laughs> times like i just oh, wrote wow. it a lot and so when i finally Whoa. got the final version of the book i'm like I have written this so many times. I just know the the right words to say and no no extra words. It had a precision to it. It has a mm. has a, a crystalline structure to it that is part of its success, which is part of it being version twenty or something like that. Refinement. The yeah. word is ref- it's it's the distillation of your wisdom. Yeah. Yeah, I love that word distill. It's also the bar at which I met my wife. The bar is called distilled. <laughs> is it really? Yeah, it is, yeah. That's <laughs> yeah, perfect. That's, that's the road to alcoholism right there. And, <laughs> yeah. and, I, and I, I support it fully. Um, Haven, uh, I, I am gutted, but I need to, to bring this conversation to an end because I could keep yeah. talking to you for like plenty more minutes. Um, <laughs> but I have a final question I'd love to ask you if I may. Sure. Um, what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said in this conversation between us? It's, it's a lesson I learned from Tim Ferriss. And Tim Ferriss has this brilliant line where he says, reality is negotiable. And that has been easily, again, another short sentence that has had the biggest impact on my life. Yeah. Reality is negotiable. Vin finished by quoting Tim Ferriss, reality is negotiable. I like the nuance of that, because it doesn't say that you can deny reality or even change reality. In fact, that's the deepest lesson from Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. You need to see reality for what it is. But it's negotiable. A negotiation is asking for what you want, knowing that the answer is sometimes no. Your path through reality your way of showing up and choosing to wrestle with the angels, that's all there for you to claim if you want it to be. If you like this conversation with Vin, I've got a couple others to recommend to you. One is um, my conversation with Bobby Herrera. He's been on a few times on this podcast. Um, This interview is called The Power of the Underdog, a very inspiring speaker and a lovely man. Um, He's got a great story about how he found his place, how he found his voice on the back of a bus. And then Stephen D'Souza, one of the most thoughtful people I've met, um, that conversation is called How to Be and Not Be, um, based on actually the title of one of his books. If you want more of Vin, then on Instagram or TikTok, where he's got a large following, you'll see his handle is AskVin, A-S-K-V-I-N-H. And it's actually the same handle on all his other social media, where he really does have a great presence. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being part of this podcast. Thanks for reviewing it, giving it stars, mentioning it to friends, passing it on. I really appreciate that. I think you're awesome and you're doing great.